I think we're all aware that uh, this last week and a bit has been a bit rough for, for many of us. We're uh, still kind of reeling under uh, the weight of the, the news in, in the past days of the, the big accident, uh, claiming the life of, of so many young individuals with so much uh, of life ahead of them. There is just the normal part of what it means to, to live in, in uh, this world that has fallen and there are diseases that we're struggling against. We have, some of us have sustained serious losses in, in our lives. And so it's, it's all the more meaningful for us to, to gather here as God's people on a Sunday morning where we remember and we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus and particularly in this Easter season for us to be reminded once more of the reality of the fact that Jesus has indeed conquered sin and the grave and no matter what we may be facing on a given day that truth will always be there and we live in light of that truth. We all live in the afterglow of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And, and that's what we're here to celebrate. We're here to, to hear from the Lord. And in particular, we've been finding the last week or so, uh, Pastor Josh got us started off last week on a, on a series on the Sermon on the Mount. This is kind of the, the, the uh, Cliff's Notes or the Cole's Notes version of Jesus' teaching and uh, very important for us to understand. And so this morning we'll continue on where, where Pastor Josh left off. So I would encourage you to stand with me. We're going to read from Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 to 16. It's Matthew 5, 13 through 16. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste. How shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Let's pray. Lord, we, uh, we want to see ourselves as part of that crowd scattered all over those green hills of Galilee as you speak to us about living in your kingdom. So we pray that you will open our ears to hear what we might not have heard before and remind us of who we are and what you'd have us do. Give us a glimpse of your kingdom and help us see the way you see. And may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be pleasing in your sight. O oh Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Please take a seat. I have uh, something in my hand that you may not have seen before. It is a miniature 
Jesus' action figure. You, you can get these in your local dollar store, and I was in Moose Jaw a little while ago, and I saw this on the shelf, and, and I knew I might be going against the second commandment of uh, ha- having any graven images, but I just, a uh, hundred different sermon illustrations just kind of flooded through my mind, and I just couldn't help myself. So I had, I had to buy, it cost me a dollar and a quarter, and, and I, I have this, my very own mini Jesus action figure. Now, you might be asking, you know, why, why buy a little plastic Jesus? And the answer is simple. Everyone can use a little Jesus. Maybe you've heard that before. It's true in all kinds of different ways. Because when you have a little Jesus... You can keep him under control. Look, he's, he's encased in plastic. So he's not going to get out of there and do things that might make us nervous. Like overthrow the tables of the money changers or turn water into wine or curse fig trees or tell us what to do. This is a perfectly safe little Jesus. It's great to have one of these because like, you, can, you can put him in your pocket and you can take him anywhere you go and then you, at the right time when you really need him you can bring him out and then people say, who is that guy? I don't know, but he's with Jesus. Very helpful. And I think the people around us like it when we have a little Jesus because they don't like us getting all super weird and serious and religious with them. But if we just have a little Jesus, that's fine. That's safe. That's easy. But the problem is, when we start opening up uh, the Scriptures and and we turn to uh, Matthew chapter 5 and 6 and 7 and, and we look at uh, what Jesus says there, there there is no little Jesus to be found. When we, took, uh, when we take a look at uh, the Sermon on the Mount, this is the kind of Jesus we see and that doesn't even do true justice to what Jesus is trying to say in these three chapters. In the Sermon on the Mount, we see this big Jesus telling us what it might be like, what life could be like if we were to truly follow him as his disciples. Now, he's not trying to make it so hard that we're driven to despair by saying we'll never, ever reach this level, and so we we just throw ourselves at his feet. I don't think that's what he's up to here. I don't think he's saying, well, we can only live this way during the millennium. I don't think he's trying to say that either. He's not saying, well, I'm going to be back in just a few minutes, so this needs to be kind of a spiritual boot camp to help you learn how to act in the meantime. I don't think that's what Jesus is about at all in, in these three chapters. I think what we see in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthews 5, 6, and 7, is that we see Jesus' dream. 
Jesus has a dream. A dream of what it would be like if all of his disciples took him seriously. If all of his followers knew that he was not a little Jesus, but he was a big Jesus. And that they would seek the kingdom and his righteousness. What we see in the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' messianic imagination at work. And he's asking us, he's saying, look what life could be like if we would simply seek the kingdom. If we would recognize that life is not about us. It is about seeking the kingdom, of understanding what the Lord wants and then falling in line. Jesus isn't trying to be a new lawmaker here. Jesus is a divine dreamer. And before us all, he's painting this amazing picture of what life indeed could be like. If only we had a big Jesus. So last week, Pastor Josh got us started Because in the Beatitudes, we have this picture of what disciples are supposed to be like. And it it gives a a great picture of of how countercultural we're supposed to be. How our values do not relate to the values of the world around us. So that's how we're supposed to be like. And now the rest of of, uh, what we're looking at this morning that kind of composes the the introduction to the sermon is not what we're supposed to be like, but what we're supposed to do. And so this is what Jesus is trying to tell us in in these few verses, verses 13 to 16 of chapter 5. But he doesn't start off by telling us what to do. He starts by telling us what we are. And to do that, Jesus uses two little phrases here that that are fairly catchy because a lot of us have probably heard of them before. He says, you are the salt of the earth and you are the light of the world. He is telling us what we are. Okay, so we're salt. What does that mean? Well, back in in Jesus' time, salt was used for all kinds of different things. They used salt for money. They used to pay soldiers with salt if, if they were worth their salt. That was the money they received. They used salt back in those days as, as fertilizer in small amounts. They used it as a preservative but because they didn't have refrigeration. They used salt as a disinfectant. And just like us today, they use salt as a spice to give flavor to their food. That's a lot of uses. And so people have tried to figure out, now, which one of these uses does Jesus have in the back of his mind when he's saying, you are the salt of the earth? I don't think we have to choose. I think what Jesus is trying to say is, to those who are listening to him, can you imagine life without salt? And they couldn't. Like salt and sunshine, those were the staples of life back in those days. And so Jesus' point is is not to try to to pinpoint one particular part of, of how salt functions. He's just saying, we need to have the same 
positive influence and impact on life in the way that salt does. And if we can't imagine what life is like without salt, that's his point. He would like us not to be able to imagine what life would be like without his followers acting in this fashion, being salty. And notice, he says, you are the salt of the earth. Not you could be, or you might be, or you should be. You are the salt of the earth. It's a statement of fact. This is what God has made us. So what do you, what do you think of when, when you think of salt? It's, it's not a trick question. It's salty. There, there we go. Whenever we think, we think of something that, that's salty. And it's inconceivable of thinking of salt that isn't salty, right? But, but there's something odd here because sodium chloride, salt, is a stable compound. So by its very chemical derivation, it's supposed to always be salty. We shouldn't be able to imagine salt that isn't salty. And I think this is the point. Jesus is saying, I can't imagine a disciple who isn't salty, who isn't being what I've called him to be. Now, there is one way in which salt can become less salty. It's when it gets mixed up with all kinds of impurities. A couple months ago, I, I, was, I was floating in the Dead Sea in Israel, which is quite a feat because everywhere else I swim like a rock. But in the Dead Sea, because of the high mineral and salt content, even I, Mr. Rock Guy, can float on the top because of all the salt. It is the saltiest water on the face of the earth. But there's a problem with the Dead Sea salt. It is filled with all kinds of impurities. Now, if you're assuming you could go to the Dead Sea and, and see a sea that's full of nice, beautiful, pure, white salt, kind of like when you're driving through Chaplin, right? If, if, if that's your picture of the Dead Sea, guess again. Because the salt in the Dead Sea is dark, black, greasy slime. Because it is so impure. That's not the kind of salt I'm going to put on my french fries. Because it would make it look too much like poutine. And that's gross. See, the point is, salt is salty. <laughs> and that's what Jesus is calling us to be, to be salty. To be the very thing that he has created us to be. Now, if that doesn't make sense, he goes on to be even more obscure. And he talks about us being the light of the world. Now, what does he mean there? Well, we know that light performs several functions as well. Light shows the way. It dispels darkness. It can even bring healing. And again, we notice that Jesus tells us that we are the light of the world. This is what we do. We've been designed by God to bring light, 
because that's what light does. And then he does the same thing with light as he does with salt. He says, a light that is hidden is a contradiction in terms. You can't hide a big city that is on the hill because its lights will be seen for miles around. You can't hide light. Light dispels darkness. And I think what What's going on in the back of their minds? A city on a hill. Most people in Jesus' audience would, of course, be thinking of Jerusalem that is built on top of a hill, and you just can't miss it. You can be miles away, and you're not going to miss it. Man, we're in Saskatchewan, and on a clear night, we can see the lights of Regina. And it's as flat as a pancake. So if we can see Regina's lights, imagine the city built on a hill because lights are meant to be seen. Lights are meant to shine. That's what they're created for. That's what we're called to do. So when, when we were in, in Israel, one of our hosts in Nazareth gave me this little replica lamp. It's kind of an ancient pen light, because <laughs> lamps in those days were a little bigger, but this is kind of built to scale. And what you'll notice is there's, there's a big hole here, and then a little hole here with a wick that sticks up. So what you do is you pour the oil in this hole, and then you trim this wick, and you light it, and then you put it on a stand, and it sheds light to everyone in the house. And back in those days, their houses were usually about one room only. And it didn't take much of a light to dispel the darkness. So th this is not rocket science. <laughs> Jesus is, is just saying, you are the light of the world. He's making the same point with light as he did with the salt. He's made us salty and bright. It's in our very nature to be so. And we are to have this same kind of, of positive influence and impact on all that surround us. Now, if, if we've been listening closely uh, to the text, what Jesus is saying, not only do we hear him tell us what we are, salt and light, but he also tells us who we do it for. There we go. And if we go back and reread again and, and take special notice of a couple of phrases, I think the hints become clear. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others. You get the sense here? In terms of, of who we're shining for, we're, we're shining not for ourselves. We're shining for the sake of others. 
Jesus isn't talking about us shining to nice church people like ourselves. He's talking about the need for us as salt and light to have this positive influence on those who don't know Jesus, who don't know that Jesus has come to give them life that they could never earn on their own. We're we're to do this for those who, who don't understand that Jesus has brought all things into being. He has come for our salvation, and he wants to have a relationship with us. He wants us to be able to shine to these people who know that if we try to work things out on ourselves, by ourselves, by our own selfish motives, it's nothing but a dead-end street. Those are the people to whom we shine and to whom we are salty. It's a, it's a reference to our witness to those outside the boundaries of the body of Christ and the kingdom of God. He isn't calling us inward. He's not calling us to circle the wagons and treat each other with special kindness. His dream is when all of his followers, all of his disciples are focused outward to those who don't know him yet. He wants his people to take the lead in being a positive influence to those who don't know Jesus yet. And that's the call. And this influence is not only to be found in our immediate surroundings and neighborhoods, but it's supposed to spread to our province, to our country, and to the world. When Jesus is talking about being salty and being light, he's not putting any limitations on that. He's saying we we should start small, but it should never end. We need to have this sense of realizing we're salt and light everywhere. And we're called to be that positive, irresistible influence wherever we go. That's what it means to be a follower of Jesus. That's what it means to be a disciple of Christ. That's what it means to dream Jesus' dream along with him. Now, this is what Jesus is up to because he knows that if we are salt... And if we are light, and we are this way to those who don't know Jesus, it's going to lead somewhere. So he also tells us, in that last verse, he tells us why we do it. Look at verse 16. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they will see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Now, actually, for those of us who haven't quite figured out yet what it means to be salt and light, because Jesus hasn't really told us yet, right? He just says, you are salt, you are light, you were created to do so, so do so. What does it mean to be salt and light? So what, what, what Jesus is doing here is finally tipping his hand to say, well, here's how we are salt and light, And so what he does here in in the last verse, verse 16, is, is to show us how we are to be salt and light before he tells us why we are to be that way. So being salt and light is not just a matter of showing up and looking salty or bright. Being salt and light is about what we do. Jesus says people are supposed to see our good 
works. See, being salt and light means we do things. We have been created to do good works, which people can see. You see, to be called salt and light is not a status. To be called salt and light is our function. This is what we have been made to do, not just to kind of stand there and try to be bright and salty. To be salt and light is to be, by its very nature, active in reaching those around us with with simple deeds of kindness, with with words that uphold and and help, with with active deeds of, of mercy and grace to those who are suffering or grieving and are having difficulty in all kinds of different ways. We're called to actively bring this kind of influence by simple deeds. We've been saved to serve. What we do as followers of Jesus makes a difference. It's what God has created us to do. So that answers the question, how, how are we salt, how are we light? We are to do observable, kind, good, loving deeds to those all around us. And why do we do that? Why do we do what we do? Because that way others will see our good works and they will give glory to our Father who is in heaven. What that means is our work is our witness. We take our faith to the streets by being actively involved in shedding the love of Jesus by the way we act to those around us, those that are in our immediate communities and those that can be spread around the world. It's a call to action. It's a call to be disciples by putting the truth and the teachings of Jesus into action. And I don't think we will understand what the rest of the Sermon on the Mount is about unless we understand this important part. We're not salty just by huddling together and and wringing our hands and complaining how unchristian the non-Christians are. You ever pondered that? How else could non-Christians be but unchristian? And sometimes we spend all this time wondering, oh, how, how nasty and non-Christian they are, these non-Christians. That's not being salty. We can't come together and, and wring our hands and say, oh, look, oh, the government is against us. Or it's so difficult to live as a believer in our nation these days. That's not what he's calling us to. He's not calling to this inward circling of the wagons. He's talking about being salt and light, permeating those areas around us. Not feeling sorry for ourselves, but taking the affirmative action that is needed to show the love of Christ. To be acting redemptively to our neighbors and to those across the street and around the world. Our work is our witness. So, a huge part 
of Jesus' dream for his kingdom is to have us actively working to bring positive, irresistible influence to the world. And let's, let's get real for a second. We're, we're not going to be able to do this if, if our idea of Jesus is only that big. This kind of dream can only capture our imagination if we have a big Jesus. And you know the thing, the difference between a little Jesus and a big Jesus? We can use a little Jesus. You can't use a big Jesus. You have to obey a big Jesus. And this same big Jesus is saying, this is my dream for my kingdom. This is what I dream can be a reality when God's will is done on earth as it is in heaven. This is a dream we become parts of when we realize that Christ is calling us to this kind of activity, this irresistible influence. Now, a couple of decades ago, a guy named Robert Lewis was a pastor of a megachurch in Little Rock, Arkansas. He started to ask this question. If our church disappeared, would our community even notice? And he didn't like the answer he received. And so he decided to turn things around. They were already a mega church, but they felt that they were missing out in impacting their community. So they went and they visited the mayor of Little Rock and said, is there anything you want us to do? And when the mayor came to, he gave them all kinds of possible projects. And they threw themselves into that. And the impact that this church and then linking arms with other church had on the whole city of Arkansas was that no longer did they have to go to the mayor to ask what to do. The mayor started coming to them. LifeBridge Christian Church, Longmont, Colorado, did very much the same kind of thing. A large church reorganized themselves to have impact on their community. They started becoming a neighboring church, and they wrote a book of the same name, and that book has even started a gentle revolution right here in Karenport because they recognized our need to be salt and light. Every year in Steinbach, Manitoba, 1,400 volunteers from churches every year are given a yellow t-shirt and then they're sent out all around the city and they clean up all the garbage in the entire city. It's like an army of dandelions surrounding the whole city and they clean up the whole city to the glory of God. They're making an impact in the name of Jesus. These things can happen. These things are happening. What happens when we are salt and light? When our good deeds are undeniable and irresistible? People notice what we're doing and how we're doing it. And they are amazed. And God is honored. And his kingdom comes bit by bit. 
And so if we don't get what Jesus is calling us to in this part of the sermon, we don't get the rest of the sermon at all. In essence, what Jesus is saying here is that who we are shines through what we do. We can't rip those apart. Who we are shines through what we do. In essence, what we have here in these few verses and in the, the remaining chapters here in the Sermon on the Mount, we, we have Jesus, I have a dream speech. What we see in these verses and in others, we see Jesus standing on the side of this mountain and saying, I have a dream today. I have a dream that every disciple will not be judged by what he says, but by what he does. I have a dream that every disciple will reach out to her neighbor in love and self-sacrifice. I have a dream today. I have a dream that the whole world will sit in wordless wonder when they see my disciples in action. I have a dream where my disciples will be more known for their hospitality than their hypocrisy. I have a dream that my Father's will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I have a dream today. That's a big dream. But he's a big Jesus. And so we end this morning with just a simple question. How big is your Jesus? Jesus.